Stanford University. In the course of the uh, uh, last uh, 10 years, I think uh, uh, I have introduced uh, over uh, maybe 150 speakers. Uh, and uh, I can say with some certainty that none have been as uh, easy and as difficult as introducing uh, our uh, speaker tonight. Um, it is the easiest because uh, she has been closest to me uh, the longest period of anyone in my life. She is my very dear sister. She was my inspiration, my source of succor and support when I was a bad student in elementary school and she was uh, the top class of the class and the darling of the uh, principal uh, and uh, saved me from uh, many a beating uh, at the time. Uh, but it is also uh, uh, at the same time the most difficult because uh, uh, it is hard not to uh, sound hyperbolic about Professor Milani, and I don't want to uh, either sound overly hyperbolic or underly cautious. Uh, it is a uh, indication of her character that it really took me and us a long time to try to get her to come here. Uh, she kept uh, suggesting that it might look like uh, there is nepotism involved, although I think anyone who has anything to do with Iranian studies at any level knows that she is obviously one of the most preeminent scholars in women's studies in, in the world. Uh, and we should and must have had her many a month ago after she brought out her uh, book. Uh, I, I think uh, one of the most remarkable characteristics of uh, uh, Farzaneh is the many, many different qualities that she has in uh, one person. Uh, I think, uh, again, the combination of her uh, abilities, uh, her relentless dedication to perfection, uh, and at the same time her humility, her self a facing uh, nature uh, make her a rather remarkable combination of someone with enormous accomplishments, but someone who is also reluctant to uh, uh, talk about them or uh, take uh, center stage. Uh, long before uh, writing about Farooq Farrokhzad became, deservedly, I think, something of a cottage industry, in uh, Western academia, I think Farzaneh is the first one, the first uh, student to write a PhD dissertation on Farooq Farrokhzad. Uh, she wrote it many, many uh, years ago uh, when I was young and she was younger. Uh, and uh, uh, she was also one of the uh, first people, at least that I know of, who wrote a remarkably detailed scholarly account of Qurratulain, uh, not just about her 
religion, but about her poetry, about her erudition, uh, about her relentless uh, feminism. Uh, she has also translated the Simine Behbahani into English. Uh, she edited a special edition uh, of Nimei Digar, where there was a fabulous collection of articles on Simina Danishvar, who just passed away. Uh, she is, in, in my experience, um, she has uh, the authority, the grace of uh, a lion's authority, the relentless uh, uh, desire to help uh, and defend her uh, beloveds and her ideas uh, like a tiger and then she has the soft uh, sound of a nightingale it's very hard to imagine someone being at once a nightingale, a tiger and a lion and I think Farzaneh is truly that remarkable combination so it is my humbling uh, pleasure to share with you for tonight at least for a couple of hours my lovely sister, Farzana Milani. Hi. Um, it's hard to talk after such an introduction. Um, my brother was thorough and very generous and very kind but he forgot to say the most important item on my CV and in my life. I have the great honor to be Abbas Milani's sister. Mm -hmm. uh, although he referred to me as a sister, but he didn't say that anywhere I go, uh, I uh, take with me as a badge of honor the fact that uh, I had the good fortune the stars were all very aligned when I was born, and I was born before Abbas and older. So, <laughs> party by the cat. I want to thank you all for coming here on such a beautiful day. I know you always have such beautiful day in uh, California. I come from Virginia, so I cherish a day like that. So uh, you honor me with your presence. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, my talk today is um, basically about uh, a book that uh, I published uh, about uh, five months ago. Um, it's, uh, it's called Words Not Swords. Uh, it's about Iranian women writers. That has been the passion uh, of my intellectual life, of my professional life uh, for the last 30 some years, uh, you know, almost a decade soon. Um, so what I want to do, um, with your permission, um, is first to place uh, the book uh, and um, the major thesis of the book uh, in the context. Is it better now? Uh, I want to place um, my talk in the context of what's happening in Iran and what's happening in uh, the region. Uh, um, and then um, um, I will talk about the central thesis of, the, of my book, 
which is freedom of movement. Uh, and then, of course, the most important part for me uh, is the role of Iranian women writers. As uh, you will notice, um, my core argument is that in the last 160 years, uh, Iranian women writers uh, have been at the forefront uh, of a moderating, modernizing uh, movement uh, in my country um, of birth in Iran. So um, um, these are exhilarating and challenging times in the Middle East and North Africa uh, with the green movement uh, in Iran um, and then uh, uh, the Jasmine Revolution in Tunisia uh, and all the different uprising that have come to be known as the Arab Spring uh, throughout the Arab world. Women and men um, have been asking relentlessly uh, for their human rights and their human dignity. Um, what I think is fascinating about these movements uh, is that um, among many other qualities, they share a few points. First, for someone like me who has always believed in the power of words rather than swords, for someone who has believed in peace rather than war, is that this has been a nonviolent movement. The governments have tried to turn it into a violent movement, but the people, the overwhelming majority of the people, uh, did not want violence, and they wanted to end violence of any form. Um, this was a movement that was youth-generated throughout the region. Um, it was technologically savvy. Uh, look at these uh, wonderful, uh, and I had a whole bunch of them. I had to contain myself not to show too many of them. Um, and look at the discrepancy between the age of the leaders and the lead. I will give you only the example of Iran, for instance, uh, 70 plus to 27, the average age of the Iranian people, and the average age of our leaders is 70 plus. Um, and uh, look at some of these other uh, um, rulers in the Arab world. Uh, uh, it is truly mind-boggling. Um, and this picture, I find it so Amazing, I couldn't help not including it here. Um, but what I'm most interested about and what I want to focus mostly uh, my talk today on is what I call a revolution within revolutions. All these uprisings have all these various attributes and qualities. There is one thing that they all share in common and that's um, the fact that uh, for the first time, you have an unprecedented number of women taking part in these demonstrations. I call that a revolution within a revolution. I, call, I say that the genie is out of the bottle, and uh, it's not going to be easy to put her back in. Um, 
you see uh, iconic images of women. This, of course, is the women in Yemen, uh, you know, who um, basically unveiled her, her face, took the niqab for the first time. To me, these desegregated demonstrations are as iconic as the image of this man who stood in front of Tiananmen Square, in front of roaring banks, and the image became iconic. And look at some of the other images that have become iconic again in the last few years. This, of course, is the heart-wrenching image of a young woman who was asking for her uh, basic human right to be able to vote. And of course, it was captured on the camera of a citizen photographer. And it is the video that was immediately watched the most throughout the world. No video has been watched more than the video of this cruel and unnecessary death, Neda Agha Sultan in Iran. And then we have this young woman, uh, Hafsa Mahfouz, who challenged men to join her at Tahrir Square. It was always the reverse. It was the men who belonged to the square. And now suddenly you have a woman announcing uh, in front of a camera uh, um, on YouTube that I am going to Tahrir Square. And if you are man enough, you will join me there. Um, women in Saudi Arabia who are uh, struggling to uh, drive. Uh, and compare these iconic images to previous images that we have, or at least perception of images. We know a large number of women also participated in the 1979 revolution in Iran. They did. But look at the iconic images of that revolution. It's often men. Um, and for the first time, we change. We see a change of that. Uh, man of the year, uh, right after the revolution, was an old bearded man. Uh, a person of the year, last year, two years ago, was a young woman, a student, someone who was struggling for real democracy and human rights. And you have, of course, these Nobel Peace laureates, two women. So all of these by way of introduction, um, to tell you what I think is fascinating about these movements is their desegregated nature. Um, what do I mean by segregation? It's um, um, very simple. We are all familiar with it. Sex segregation is the division of space based on gender. It's when you keep the world of men and women separate, uh, obsessively. Uh, is it possible to always do it? Not necessarily, but that's the ideal. Um, so these movements were desegregated. Um, with the uh, advent of modernity, freedom of movement, which is the one thing that separates men and women in a sex-segregated society. Otherwise, men and women in sex-segregated society share many things together. Uh, 
um, the access of one to the other is almost the same. What is different in a sex-segregated society for men and women is that whereas men are free to roam at will, women are not. Uh, in Persian, we say zanekhane, the place, the proper place for a woman is inside the house, and marde meidan, the proper place for a man is the public square. So with modernity um, in the West and throughout the world, there was recognition that there is, that there is a close interconnectedness between power and the control of space. And to be able to control space, you need to have freedom of movement. Look at some of the things that will not be possible if you are not free to move about. Uh, access to power, political representation, leisure, religion, interpretation of religion. Look at what has happened to, for instance, Islam in Iran. Um, except for the first few decades of Islam, women have been absent from any interpretation of the scripture. The, the pen um, and the power of interpretation has been in the hands of men because women were denied access to the pulpit. Labor force, uh, women have always worked very hard, but there is a difference between the kind of work that pays and that's considered labor force and the kind of work that never is finished and is at work uh, inside the house. Um, the arts. Uh, economic rights, and education. So freedom of movement, I believe, is at the core of a women's uh, freedom and liberation. Now, the thesis in my book, Words Not Swords, um, is twofold. I've already shared one with you. I told you that I believe in the last 150, 160 years, and in a minute I will tell you one, why 160 years, uh, women writers have been at the forefront um, of this democratizing movement in Iran, uh, a moderating, modernizing movement. The second argument I have is that a woman not only needs a room of her own, you know, uh, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the seminal work of Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, um, which is uh, one of my most favorite book. But I am um, loving Virginia Woolf and having studied her all my life, I've come to realize that there is a, um, some, something missing in that core argument. You can have a room of your own, and you can have the 500 shillings that she thought every woman needs in order to become a writer. But if you can't leave that room, you're a prisoner. By definition, uh, when you are denied freedom of movement, when you cannot leave a room and return to it at will, that's the definition of prison. Uh, you, you become a prisoner. So although economic rights were granted to women in Iran, uh, because they were sex segregated, they could not fully exercise the right granted to them. Um, 
for centuries, masculinity and femininity uh, in Iran, and in a minute I will put it in a social, in a more global context, but for now in Iran, it was directly designed and defined in relation to space. Uh, mobility was desired uh, and in fact expected in men. Uh, you might remember the film, wonderful film, Hassan Kachal. You know, if you remember, Hassan Kachal doesn't want to leave home and his mother is going nuts um, because uh, she knows if he doesn't leave home, he's not going to be considered a full man uh, in his full virility. Um, and then femininity, to the contrary, uh, was construed as enclosure, rootedness, and constraint movement. Uh, another movie that would be fascinating to compare to Hassan Kachal is, of course, uh, the movie Apple. Uh, that you might have seen, which is the opposite of that. A father who has literally imprisoned his two daughters, uh, the twin girls, in order to protect them. Um, men, uh, iconic images of men are always uh, riding a horse. And of course, later on, it turns into cars and bicycles and airplanes. But uh, this is uh, presumably a picture of Rostam and his horse, Raksh, who has a name. He's so fundamental uh, to the role uh, that Rostam plays that uh, he's almost like a character. Um, of course, John Wayne and uh, uh, flying tigers. And uh, there are many such images of men on horses, on planes, on. Um, and then uh, Don Quixote. Uh, we know um, for many uh, literary critiques, Don Quixote uh, is the first modern novel. And uh, uh, many have written why Don Quixote is the modern uh, novel. Um, in, in particular, Milan Kundera has done a fantastic expose on it. To me, the most important reason is that Don Quixote uh, is on the road. He doesn't have to be part of the aristocracy or the heroic uh, to have access to full freedom of movement. He can be on the road and um, uh, go places. And, and um, of course, uh, Michel Foucault, uh, the fa fantastic, wonderful French philosophers, believes that because freedom of movement was such an important integral right of a modern citizen, curtailing it became the reason uh, why uh, prisons became the most dominant form of punishment. And, and for instance, we know now that the United States of America is the number one prisoner in the whole world, that we have more prisoner in this country than anywhere else in the world. And what do prisons do other than denying the prisoner his freedom of movement? Um, Controlling women's freedom of movement precedes the birth of prison. Uh, and Daruni, in many ways, functioned like a prison. You know, where your entry into it, but definitely your exit from it, 
was completely controlled and um, um, not uh, under your own, um, with your own decision. Now I want to take just a couple of more minutes to put what I've said in a more global context, and then I will move on to women writers in Iran. I believe uh, curtailing women's movement is not the monopoly of Iran, uh, of any single faith or any single region. Um, it is more global, uh, albeit to different degrees uh, and to, with different methods. Look at the very symbol of masculinity and femininity. Uh, women is rooted. There are many good things about being rooted. I realize that. But she's immobilized. And she's immobilized in a handheld mirror. It's called the mirror of Venus. Women being a prisoner of her body, of her looks. And then look at the symbol of masculinity, weapons of Mars. Unattached, upward looking, can go places. The sky is the limit. I'm going to give you a few other examples. Uh, China, uh, for 10 centuries, um, foot binding was practiced. Uh, foot binding is a very complex phenomenon. Um, I don't want to deny its complexity, but among many other things, what it did, it cut the feet of women. It uh, shrunk it to three inches. They called it golden lotus, three-inch golden lotus. Literally, the ideal woman with the ideal bound feet was almost paralyzed. By the way, I've been very interested in the similarities between foot binding and veiling, the tradition of veiling as a symbol and a sign of sex segregation. And the similarities are mind-boggling. And there are, in fact, many references in the Chinese sources that I could read in the languages that I know that do make that reference. Um, Cinderella, the oldest version and the most popular tale in the world, was written during the beginning of foot binding in China. So the origin of uh, Cinderella comes from uh, 10th century China. You know, there are almost 600 different versions of Cinderella tale. But almost all of them have one characteristic feature, the small feet of Cinderella. Cinderella goes from rags to riches because she has those tiny bound feet that no one else can match in the country. Um, I want to uh, share with you examples of modern feminine beauty, of course, uh, the most popular toy ever created in the world, Barbie, whose feet are the size of a four or a half toddler. The feet of Cinderella, I've done the calculation, um, she has the shoes, the size, the feet, uh, of, of, um, of a little girl of four or five. If you put uh, Barbie uh, on her own feet, she cannot stand on them, of course. And because she's so heavy uh, with her breast, you know, half of her weight is in her breast, she's going to fall flat on her face. Um, now, uh, think of uh, fairy tales. Uh, I told you a minute ago about how uh, ideal masculinity uh, was always on a horse, um, in a car, uh, uh, flying planes. 
And ideal femininity is sleeping beauties, you know, as almost dead as it can get, as immobilized uh, as you want her to be. Um, and what about the counter-ideal women? Uh, who are the counter-ideal women? Um, of course, old and wrinkled and all that. But the most important uh, feature of uh, witches is that they can fly on their broomsticks. Um, uh, witches can go to forbidden places. They don't stay in their proper place. And by the way, they also always have huge flat feet. It's the opposite of Cinderella. And think about it for a minute. Why do we call prostitutes a streetwalker? What's wrong with walking the streets? It's the prerogative of men. We don't call them prostitute for walking the street. So counter-ideal femininity is closely associated with, mass, uh, with space and with movement and mobility. Uh, beauty ideals change, and indeed they are changing. Uh, so we have Wonder Women um, who can fly, who can uh, go places, and uh, Spider Women who has the power of self-propelled motion. Um, and even someone like Jasmine, uh, I have many problems with the movie Aladdin, but the presentation uh, of Jasmine in that movie I find absolutely fascinating. And uh, please read these few lines uh, at the end uh, when she has finally chosen uh, Aladdin uh, as her mate. Aladdin, who wasn't regal, who wasn't rich, who wasn't educated, but Aladdin offered one thing to Jasmine that no one else could. It was the magic carpet. It was taking her on a ride of the skies. And so when they come back, she says, soaring, tumbling, freewheeling, through an endless diamond sky, I'm like a shooting star. I've come so far, I can't go back to where I used to be. And indeed, as I said it before, once the genie is out of the bottle, you can't put, it, put her back in. And indeed, she doesn't go back to where she used to be. So now um, I want to take the rest of my time uh, to connect what I have said to Iranian women writers. I find this dual theme of flight and captivity as the most central metaphor, the trope in Iranian women writers. And I want to assure you, I did not come up with this theory first and then impose it on women writers. It was the other way around. After studying, after being a student of Iranian women writers for all these years, I realized that there are two themes that are repeated over and over again in their writing. One is flight. Mm, parvoz, uh, and the other one uh, is captivity. Uh, one related to the past and partly to their condition of the day, uh, and one the ideal um, that um, they were striving for. So these metaphors, you know, walls and veils and imposed silences and fences and cages and closed doors are, are central 
to the writing of women writers in Iran, um, whereas uh, flying and soaring and um, dancing and going places is the other equally important metaphor. Um, I recently saw this picture from that. Uh, um, it was in an exhibition uh, from Iran, and I thought it captures so beautifully uh, both the captivity, uh, the chain, and also the flight. That, um, I think it's a very powerful image. So uh, when did that start? When did Iranian women writer began their um, search um, for um, their um, right as citizens, um, and in particular, uh, what I'm interested in and uh, my talk is about, freedom of movement. Uh, social movements are not like pregnancy. Uh, you cannot give a date, uh, the date of conception, the date of the birth. Uh, I realize that. Um, but we, uh, having said that, I believe if we were to um, go back in history and come up with a date that uh, women's movement and definitely Iranian women's literary movement began in Iran, we have to go back to 1848. This is the year um, that women's movement began in the world, of course, in Seneca Falls Convention, 19th of July, 1848. And you know Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, we have a prize in my uh, Department of Women's Studies that to the best uh, paper written by a graduate student. It's Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She's all over the place. Well, there was another woman in Iran who did something incredibly courageous, incredibly forward-looking. Her name was Tahir Ghoratul Ain. Uh, in 1848, she entered a congregation of 81 men with her face unveiled and with her voice unveiled and proclaimed the dawning of a new era. Um, I'm not a scholar of religious uh, religion, um, and I'm not a Baha'i or a Babi. Uh, um, I was born a Muslim. So I don't say that as uh, religious propaganda. I have come to this conclusion as a literary critique. Um, I think the role Quratul Ain has played in Iran has never been quite acknowledged in the world. Um, you read about women's movement in the world, there is rarely any reference to Tahir al Ain. And yet, I think the role she has played is fundamental. Uh, she was uh, a poet. Of course, she was also a religious scholar, among many other things. And her life is fascinating. Uh, maybe if we have time during the Q&A, I could share with those of you who are not familiar with her a little bit of her life. Um, I went to Seneca Falls Convention a couple of years ago uh, to, to give a talk. Uh, they, had, they were familiar with my work on Gorat Ain, And uh, they had this fantastic tapestry uh, there as a surprise to me. And I was indeed surprised. I had been studying Gorat Ain for 30 years. I didn't know such a thing existed. So Americans, in fact, have been more um, 
acknowledging of the role a woman played in women's movement in the world than we, the Iranians, who have consistently put her down um, and not recognized the role she has played. I want to read for you one of her poems. Um, it is argued sometimes that this poem was not written by Quratul Ain. To me, um, the, the issue of purity, whether it was written by her or not, does not matter as much as everybody thinks it is Quratul Ain who wrote it. And when I um, get to campaign for one million signature, you will see how important this poem is and how things are really changing inside the country under the Islamic Republic of Iran. This is that beautiful poem, and uh, I won't read it in Persian. I'm going to read that. Uh, my translation, which I admittedly is a poor translation, doesn't compare to the beautiful uh, Iranian uh, Persian version of it. I would explain all my grief dot by dot, point by point. If heart to heart we talk, and face to face we meet. To catch a glimpse of you, I'm wandering like the wind, from house to house, from door to door, from place to place, from street to street. Separated from you, the blood of my heart gushes from my eyes, in torrent after torrent, river after river, in wave upon wave, stream after stream. This afflicted heart of mine has woven your love to the stuff of my life, strand by strand, tread by tread. On one level, this is a love poem. On another le level, this is a complete reversal of what I've been talking about. If men have always been the one on the horse, moving, going places, the wind in this poem becomes Quratul Ain's freedom machine. And in classical literature, I have to tell you, other women have also used the same, but to a much lesser extent. So the wind here is a means of transportation. It takes the author, a woman, from place to place, from house to house, from street to street. Now, I will come back to, to this poem in a few minutes. But I want to show you how this theme of uh, flight, of um, uh, the gateless sky, a sky that is not full of walls and veils and obstacles, is the central trope of women writers. Um, look at this beautiful poem by uh, Parvine Tesomi. Of course, it's from her poem, Zandar Iran, in which she says, it was as if women were not Iranian before. And then this, this line that a woman lived in a cage and died in a cage. The name of this bird in the rose garden was never mentioned. Now, let me add parenthetically here that Iran is recognized, is known as the land of the rose and the nightingale. But think about it. For over a thousand years, the nightingale has always been masculine. It's the rose that is feminine. You know, like the symbol 
the mirror of Venus and the weapons of Mars, the one who can fly, the one who has voice, is the, uh, the male. And the rose, the deep-rooted one, can't move, can't talk, is the rose. In Western literature, the nightingale is often a woman, a female. In Persian literature, the nightingale is often a man. And it is changing thanks to women writers and men writers who have the sensibility. Uh, and of course, uh, we can't talk about our iconic poet, Farooq uh, Farooq who whole poetry collection, the five poetry collections, and her film, The House is Black, is built upon these dual themes of captivity and movement. Um, in one of, uh, uh, in this poem, one of her most anthologized, Tanha Sedast Mimanad, in 60 lines, she repeats six times, why should I stop, why? Um, so, you know, um, uh, images of a lagoon, uh, images of stagnant water uh, are plentiful in Farrakhzad's poetry, whereas the ocean, uh, uh, the sky, uh, being able to go wherever you want is equally as important. So why should I stop? Why? The birds have gone off to find waterways. The horizon is vertical and moving is rocketing. Shining planets spin at the edge of sight. Why should I stop? Why? Women novelists um, look at uh, chosen four covers and Savashun, uh, and I want to uh, offer my condolences to all of us for the loss of uh, our uh, fantastic uh, pioneering women, Simina uh, Doneshvar, who passed away uh, uh, on International Women's Day. Um, these are some of the ironies of Iranian history. Um, you know, Savashun, her novel, has sold more than half a million copies in Iran. It's very, I think, perhaps other than my brother's books, it's kind of unusual for any book to sell uh, this, um, uh, like that. But look at the image of flying birds. And please compare these in your mind to the images on the cover of books written about Iranian women in the West, in which it is always shackles and veils and uh, walls and all metaphors of restrictions. And um, I want to give you um, just a little update on um, the fantastic uh, um, revolution, uh, literary revolution. Uh, that is one of, I call it the bilat uh, collateral benefit of the Islamic Republic. Uh, if the Islamic Republic wanted to send women back behind walls and veils, the opposite has happened, not because of the Islamic Republic, but despite of them and in opposition to them. And there is a literary renaissance uh, going on among women writers in Iran, for sure. Look at some of these numbers. Um, in the 1960s, we had a handful of women writers. Uh, Mrs. Behbahani, Khanum Danishwar, 
published her first book in 1947. Prior to that, we had a couple of novels that not, were not even very well known. In 1999, we had less than 30 women novelists. Right now, we have 370 women novelists uh, in Iran. It's uh, almost equal uh, to the number of men novelists. And these are not just novelists who are publishing uh, pulp fiction. Some of the most prestigious award these days go to women writers, and some of them are some of the best sellers in the country. Number of women translators, 1997, we had 214 of them. In 2003, we have 708 of them. Uh, women write, uh, working in Iranian publishing industry, 1997, 700. In 2003, 2,000 of them. And number of women publishers, and many of these women publishers, I know for a fact, are really advocating women's writing, uh, introducing younger women writers to the reading public. We went from 66 to 103. Just a few um, uh, statistics. I have taken these from uh, a source from Azadikian's work. So these are her work. And, uh, but I thought it was such a powerful um, chart that uh, just um, look at the number of female university students. In 1976, 57,000. In 2006, which is the last date Ms. Kian could find uh, statistics, Two million women. By the way, Iran is the only country that I know of in the world that is thinking about affirmative action for boys, for men. Uh, and why? They're concerned about these educated women. Who are they going to marry? So now the campaign for one million signature. something to be really proud of. Um, large number of men and women, young and old, educated and illiterate, veiled and unveiled women got together and started this campaign to collect one million signature to change discriminatory laws against women. What I find fascinating about the campaign, among many other things, is their motto. As you know, the motto they have chosen for this unprecedented campaign in Iranian history is face to face, street to street. These lines are taken directly from Tahere Qurratul Ain's poem. Now obviously, in Iran they cannot acknowledge that. Um, you cannot talk about Qurratul Ain. You cannot say our motto was taken from a woman who lived in, eight, who, who was executed in 1852 in Iran uh, for just exercising her freedom of religion. Uh, but regardless, they have chosen that and it is still their motto and they um, are not only acknowledging a foremother I think they're being also very wise in the role of this campaign 
This campaign goes from home to home, from street to street. It's not only collecting signature. It is also educating those women who are out on the street and um, out from their proper place. And of course, I cannot end uh, but with a poem from uh, Simin Behbahani, uh, the lioness of Iran. Um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the first time in Iranian history that a woman has become uh, our national poet, not because uh, the regime has recognized her as that, but because people inside and outside the country have recognized her as their national poet. And I love the fact that for 60 years, she has written about peace. She has con consistently believed in the power of words and rejected violence of any form as a way to solve the problems of her country. So in one of her poems, um, she writes, my poems are my sword. They are mightier than any sword. Though they can cut deep, my fine weapon is not for bloodshed. Simin Behbani has a point. She is right. Words are mightier than swords. Politicians and their weapons come and go. But arts, art remains. You can put poets and writers and artists behind bars. You, hand ha you can handcuff them. You can arrest them. You can hang them. But you cannot imprison art. You cannot handcuff poetry. You cannot put it behind bars. Um, look, uh, thanks to you, uh, their voice has traveled all the way from inside the country to Stanford University. So I want to thank you for your patience. I want to thank you for listening. And I want to thank uh, my brother for inviting me. Thank you. I think if there are any questions, I would be delighted to try to answer them. Yes. Of course, um, there is an authority on Qur'atul Ain among us, Professor Brookshaw here. Uh, so um, if it's OK, would you correct me if uh, I have uh, any misinformation here? Um, Qur'atul Ain uh, was the daughter uh, of um, a very religious uh, man. Um, from early childhood, uh, she was a child prodigy. And um, her, um, her father, who was a teacher, uh, a religious teacher, uh, allowed her uh, to um, listen behind the curtain and um, listen to her father teaching um, the students. Uh, but soon he realized that she, um, he couldn't uh, silence her. 
um, started questioning, started asking questions, and anyway, as she has a fascinating life, and and there there are a number of biographies written. Um, about her, some short, some in full length. Martha Root has written one. Professor Banoni has translated her poems and has a fantastic introduction to it. So if you're more interested, uh, these, and there are lots of other books. Um, at the age of 14, as, is, as it was the custom, she was married to her cousin, uh, who was also the son of another uh, Mujtahid uh, in the city of Qazvin, a bastion of uh, conservative Islam. Um, and um, she became familiar uh, with the work of uh, Sheikhi uh, school, um, and um, she traveled uh, to uh, Iraq, um, to learn more uh, about this new um, revision uh, of Islam at the time. And um, there she met, uh, she started uh, giving lectures uh, from, um, to men, uh, to, to the best of my knowledge. We still don't have anything like that, that a, a woman uh, will give lectures. These were still Muslim men. Um, and then she returned to Iran uh, with a large group of uh, uh, followers. Uh, and um, then in 1848, um, she and 81 men uh, went to Badasht in Mazandaran uh, for a convention. And it was there that they proclaimed a new faith, uh, uh, Babism uh, in Iran. But the faith was proclaimed through the unveiling of the body, of the face and the voice, but the entrance of a woman in a masculine space. There were 81 men there and the single women. And to give you an example of how shocking that was, one man wanted to kill her with a sword Another man, uh, one Abdul Khaliq Isfahani, cut his own throat with his own hands and splattered with blood, left the premises. He couldn't bring himself, he couldn't bring the sanctity of his eye to be violated by the presence of a woman in a masculine space. And I've been very interested in his life. I want to write his life. I want to write a short story. And it's very difficult to know much about him, what happened after he left. And, um, but Qurat Lane, soon after that, um, they uh, had to go in hiding. Um, and in 1848, uh, she was executed. Again, I believe she's the first Iranian woman to be executed, because in Islam, even if you are a heretic, if you are a woman, they can't kill you. And the laws are very restrictive and very difficult, <coughs> but uh, a woman should not be killed, but should be kept in almost prison until she regains her fate. But this one was executed in 1852. That's also after there was an attempt on the life of the Shah. Of course. So she was teaching men yes. under the way, not people were, were not aware that she's a woman. No, people knew she's a woman. 
In fact, again, um, to know how radical this was, many of the early uh, disciples of Bob wrote to Bob and said that this is not good. Um, that why are you allowing a woman to have a public voice and presence? And, and it's then that the title, Tahere, the pure one, was given to her by Bob. I suppose the accusations were promiscuity. Because if you are a woman in public spaces, you are a streetwalker, right? That's why he gave her uh, this title. Uh, he called her the, the pure one, Tahir, Jenab Tahir, which is even more interesting. Jenab being uh, an honorific title reserved for men. And you said you had two. What was the last one? You don't remember. For a neurologist, you, you need to go see a neurologist. No, no, I said thanks for remembering that I have to. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. So how about stoning? You said they can't be executed, but they can be stoned. She wasn't stoned, no. Dying for uh, the, the ball, Sharia. You can kill women by stoning them, right? Um, yes, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, um, you need um, witnesses. And if you stick to the laws, um, at least the way I understand it, um, witnesses have to have witnessed the act of penetration and be sure that, in fact, there was penetration. Forgive me. So if a woman is stupid enough to let onlookers watch when there is the act of uh, penetration, that's, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> yes? Yeah, isn't there precedence in Yeah. Yes. Thank you. This is a fantastic question. I'm sorry uh, I had to condense so much. And uh, usually after I finish, I say, but I didn't say anything. I mean, so this is one of the issues I, I discuss in detail in the book. Um, so please buy the book. <laughs> um, in from what I know about the early years of Islam, women were by far uh, a more active uh, participant in the society of their time. Now, there are two ways of looking at it. One, that Islam actually little by little curtailed it. The other one, also argued by many, is that patriarchal societies kind of denied women the right that was granted to them by their religion. But let me give you one fantastic example that is exactly about the question you asked. There is a woman, um, one of the uh, Prophet Muhammad's wife, Aisha. Um, she was uh, very young when she married the Prophet, and many say she was his favorite wife. Aisha. Um, if you read um, the um, Hadith literature, uh, first of all, many of them uh, are based on what she has said. Uh, she, she is the source of them. But um, in later years, um, 
you see that the image, that the perception of Aisha gets completely changed. How does it change? Aisha is remembered mainly for two things in later literature. One is the Battle of the Camel. The Battle of the Camel was a battle that Aisha um, started with uh, the first Imam of Shiites, Ali. And in that battle, she was the commander in chief. She was on a camel and leading the fight. She did that, and people didn't, she had enough men following her as their commander in chief. But later on, when you read the progression, of the literature on Aisha, you see that she's being blamed over and over for uh, uh, causing dissension within the Islamic community, that that's how Shiites and Sunnis started their fight. There is a second one that she's also most well known for. That one too, she's on a camel. She had gone to a fight, uh, to one of the battles with her husband, the prophet, and she stayed behind, and later on, when she arrived, it was with a man, and she was riding on a camel. She's also blamed for that. So there is this insinuation that, and in fact, some jurists have said, had Aisha remained in her proper place inside the house, none of these things would have happened. But let me bring it to today in my country in Iran. When Faizir Rafsanjani, the daughter of then President Rafsanjani, was running for office, one of the platforms on which she was running was the right of women to ride bicycles and motorcycles because the supreme leader had decided in his infinite wisdom that women cannot ride bicycles, that it's un-Islamic. Uh, so women are riding cars, but they can, um, driving cars, but they can ride bicycles. So Faizir Afsanjani started this campaign that there is absolutely nothing un-Islamic about women riding bicycles. So there were fascinating slogans against her inside Iran. So let me see if I can remember it in Persian, then I will translate it in English. Faize, forgive me, Aeshe ba shotor amad, Faize ba motor amad. Then, Faheshe ba motor amad, Aeshe ba motor amad. Aisha came on a camel, Faiza comes on a motorcycle, prostitutes come on a motorcycle. So, you know, people are, collective wisdom in, is incredibly powerful. Look how they have connected Aisha to Faiza to freedom of movement and bicycle and motorcycle. And by the way, bicycles and motorcycles are, are very important in women, uh, women's movement iconography. Uh, I was talking with my uh, lovely sister-in-law this morning about this. You know, in um, um, 
Oxford um, University uh, when they admitted women for the first time. There was a big uproar. Men didn't want women. In my own university, University of Virginia, which I love and have served for over 26 years, women were not admitted uh, four, four decades ago. So when women were admitted, men were very upset, the students. So I have images of it that are fascinating. You have effigies of women on motorcycles and bicycles that are being burned in, in the public square, in uh, Oxford Square. And of course, we know that many uh, women's uh, uh, movement, um, uh, people who are advocates of women's movement, have said, if it was not for the bicycle, we wouldn't have had the suffragette movement. In fact, uh, it was called the freedom machine uh, by um, early advocates of women's rights in the US. Okay. Yes, sir. You know, uh, obviously, my field is not politics, and uh, I'm not going to discuss politics because I really don't have the capacity for it, the knowledge for it. But I can tell you from a woman's perspective what I see. What, um, you know, I went back to 1848. Um, women's movement in Iran uh, did not start overnight. Uh, it did not start either with uh, Reza Shah's unveiling of women or with the Islamic Republic. Or It has been an ongoing movement, uh, slow, uh, with pushbacks and uh, with challenges. But it is a movement that is as old as women's movement. Uh, and you might not be able to call it movement, but you know I'm using it uh, just as... Um, expression of interest in women's equity and gender rights. It goes back to 148 years, 164 years. No one can stop that. Um, and for 30 years, I think, for 33 years, the Islamic Republic, factions within it, not every one of them, they have tried. They have not succeeded. I mean, this, the numbers are staggering. I mean, in my field, the one I can tell you with certainty, there has never been such a flourishing in women's writing that we see now. And it is not only uh, women poets. We have women novelists. It's not only literature of women in the early years, in, in the modern period, was confined to women of the court and high aristocracy. Keshavarza Sad, in a wonderful book, um, as Rabbi Parvin, um, talks about 107 women poets. 
And after a while, I said, God, there are so many women of the court. And so I started checking them. Out of 103, 107, 43 are Qajar princesses. More than a dozen of them, the wife of one king, Fatali Shah Qajar. I mean, you think all these havus were writing poetry for, for who? For each other? For, but the, so now, you know, one of the best novelists in Iran right now that was invited to Stanford, and maybe some of you saw her, Fariba Wafi, comes from um, lower middle class, uh, working class, uh, not very highly educated, and yet she has written books that are some of, some of the masterpieces of women's writing in contemporary Iran. No other question? Okay. Thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.